Let's pray one more time. Lord, God, we do ask that we would surrender everything to you this evening. God, we ask that, uh, that we would really uh, just be able to take this time and set it aside for you, that God, mentally, we would disconnect from what happened over the break, that God, emotionally, we would con- disconnect from maybe what's happening tomorrow at school. Lord, we just ask that we'd be able to take this time and give it to you, God, to surrender it to you. Lord, we know that you are always faithful to speak. You are always faithful to teach, to stir our hearts, to stir our affections. God, we just ask that we would be faithful to allow you to do so. God, to open ourselves up towards that. Lord, I ask personally that you would let this time be entirely about you. That God, this message would be completely for and from you. That God, anything I'm bringing would would be done away with, that God, you would destroy anything that I'm trying to teach, anything that I'm trying to prepare or instruct. God, just wipe it away. God, let these words be yours and yours alone. God, we ask, we pray the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians, that you would use this foolish preaching, Lord, to save those who believe. God, to spread your gospel. So Lord, bless this time. Use it. We pray this according to your will. Amen. Well, good evening and welcome back. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited that we're all together again. Uh, over the break, uh, I have to stay here. Like that's, that's my life and you get to leave. Uh, so since this is the evening service and we're all, we're all pretty friend, good friends here, unless you're a visitor, in which case I don't know you, but I probably would like you. Uh, we're gonna really quick just get to know a little bit about one another and I'm just gonna take a quick survey, okay, camp style, hands raised. Who uh, left the state of Texas over the break? Okay. Wow. That's a lot of us. Okay. Who, who went uh, out of the country? Did anyone leave the like, nation? Oh, my goodness. Are you serious? There are like six of us? Okay. Uh, who thinks, who's going to be bold enough to think that they went to the farthest away country out of everyone, out of you six? One of you has to volunteer. Otherwise, I'm just going to call on this guy in the front row. Okay, where'd you go? Costa Rica. Costa Rica. Can someone beat Costa Rica? Costa Rica's awesome, but it's pretty close. No one went, did anyone go further than Costa Rica? Like you're where? East Asia. Okay. Wait, did you go on like the vision trip? Ah, okay. Well, that's cheating. But that that accounts, I guess. <laughs> that's awesome though. Did you was it okay? Was it nice? What was the weirdest thing you ate? A whole fish. Like with its scales and eyes and stuff? <laughs> Gross. <laughs> That's disgusting. Well, I hope I never have to do that. Uh, well, in case you're confused, uh, our vi- East Asia, that's one of the locations we go, or that's the only location we went uh, this winter on a vision trip, which is basically just sort of a short-term mission trip. Over the summer, uh, we have these things called summer projects where we go to East Asia, to Greece, uh, to North Africa, to uh, another place, India. Uh, we go to all those places, have some mission trips, so if she went on one of them, that's awesome. I'm glad. Um, that has absolutely nothing to do with what we're talking about tonight. I was just really interested. Uh, we are, though, we are coming back into the spring. We're coming back into the normal semester, which I know maybe some of us are excited about that. Some of us are a little disappointed. Maybe some of us had a nice break that was relaxing, where we actually felt like it was a break. Some of us maybe spent the whole break talking about the government and Duck Dynasty, you know, the big pressing issues of our day. And so maybe you weren't quite as relaxed, but we're here now. HEB is insane. The roads are all insane. So I know that everyone's really back and I'm really excited. I'm so glad that we're getting back in this new semester 
Uh, not only just for this new series that I'm really excited about that we'll talk about here in a second, uh, but just, just also because I feel like the spring, everyone's a lot more focused. I feel like everyone's a lot more kind of centered in on their academic mission, right? Fall's broken up by football games. Spring, though, there's no football. There's like nothing, right? Because our basketball team probably won't be good. And so we're just kind of barreling ahead. I'm just preaching the truth, all right? But we're just barreling ahead on our academic stuff, right? And one of the things that I really love is a lot of times in the spring, uh, we kind of, we get, we like take weird, I took always all my really weird classes for whatever reason in the spring. One of the things I learned in my weird classes was that I really resonated with illustrations. I was a history major at A&M. And so a lot of our uh, classes revolved around like stories and, and people and events. And a lot of times one of my favorite ways that they would present them is they would give us like two big individuals and they would present them kind of as contrasting images. Because the way that the human mind works is that we really connect, we really get involved when you have two kind of diametrically opposed images, when you have a strong, bold contrast. That's why growing up, I really liked this little comic that was called Goofus and Gallant. Uh, I don't know if you ever read Highlights Magazine in the dentist office, but uh, if you didn't, there's still time. You still can. Uh, they're out there. Okay, Highlights Magazine, they had this comic called uh, Goofus and Gallon. Basically what it was, it taught all these informational uh, less, kind of life lessons to kids. And they did it in this format of presenting Goofus, who was just an idiot, and Gallant, who was just like the best kid ever. And you would see how they handled the same situation. For example, in this one, it's a little hard to see, uh, Goofus is on the left, top left, and he's holding a frog. And he says, you should see how far it jumps when I poke it. Okay? But then Gallant is in the top right, and he's holding a little turtle, and he says, Mr. Turtle, you may be killed if I don't move you out of the road. You're like, okay, well... So animal cruelty is being addressed. Pretty tough, you know, hard-hitting issue. But Goose and Gallant, they were risk-takers like that. They covered things like mom going to work. And the left, Goofus is telling his friend, your mother ought to stay home. <laughs> and on the right, Gallant is saying, how nice your mother is a lawyer. Uh, so, because <laughs> Gallant doesn't live in like the 1600s, and he's okay with women working and probably voting and owning property. Uh, so, but Goofus won't have any of that. Right? But Goofus and Gallant, they've actually been updated for today. They still make these, and it's amazing. Top left, celebrating Valentine's Day, Goofus has turned to his friend, and he says, I'm not giving her one. She never talks to me, says Goofus. Top right, Gallant, I like making Valentines for everyone, says Gallant, because Gallant's a lady killer as well. That's the other lesson that you're, trying to, that you're supposed to learn. Uh, but one of the things I love about Goose and Gallant is not only the fact that you're looking at this very strong contrast, but people have resonated with it for years. It started in like, I don't know, like the 50s or something. It's been going for years and years to the point where now, in fact, there's this one guy, uh, I don't remember his name, but I love him, who updated it for today and called it Goofus and Gallant and Kevin. Okay? Now... This one, I think, is a little bit more extreme, all right? You'll see. So on the left, we start with Goofus. Goofus takes all the swings for himself, but Gallant takes turns using the swing set, but Kevin buries his classmates up to their necks in fire ants, right? Kevin's a little bit on the wild side. Goofus doesn't wait for the walk signal. Gallant always looks both ways, but Kevin confuses reality with Grand Theft Auto. And goes a little crazy. But my personal favorite, Goofus slacks off in class. Gallant always pays attention, plays close attention. But Kevin tricked his teacher with a fake OkCupid account. <laughs> his teacher is now alone in a restaurant with a single rose. I know. And you feel sympathetic for this completely fictional cartoon man. That's what I really love about that. All right, now... 
But we love these images. We love this way of learning because there's just something about the, those contrasts, something about setting up two opposing images that really resonates with us. That's why when we went home this break, you probably learned something. I remember when I was in college, I lived in this college house with a bunch of dudes. And when I went home one break, one winter break, I just suddenly like had this new perspective on life. After living with dudes for a semester, I was like, oh my gosh, like I want candles, right? Like I want my house to smell good like my parents' house. Oh my goodness, I realized my parents had paper towels and my college house, for whatever reason, like the whole first year, no one wanted to buy paper towels because you knew you weren't going to use them all yourself. So you're like, I'm not buying paper towels. And so because of that, we never had paper towels and nothing was clean. And so in my parents, I was like, wow, you have paper towels and clean stuff. And this is amazing, right? I was like, I want this. Like, I see this contrast. I see this bold difference. And I want what you have. Maybe you went over the break and you realized, wow, I never, ever want my marriage to look like my parents' marriage because my parents' marriage is terrible. Maybe you realize that you just, you hate the way they interact with one another. You hate the way that they interact with maybe other people. They're talking behind each other's backs in front of you all break. Maybe you went home and you realized, wow, I really wish that my school experience looked like his or like hers. I wish my, I had the grades like my sister does. I wish I had the friends or the, or the involvement levels that my brother does. Maybe you saw this contrast and you're like, man, I, I want that, right? You learned something about yourself. Maybe you're hoping that this spring will be a contrast to last semester. Maybe you're hoping that this last fall will never repeat itself because it was just terrible. Maybe you look out in your life and you see contrasts and you learn the things that you want. And you're like all of us. I mean, that's how we learn. That's what we pick up on. And I don't know which contrast, which kind of bold differences you're dealing with right now, but I can tell you that the Lord has given us another contrast to look at. Second Samuel 6, what Sarah just read, we see a very bold contrast. We see a very bold difference between two men God sets it up between this first guy uh, named Uzzah. And Uzzah is the dude that Sarah just read. He just got struck down, killed on the spot. God just like straight up kills him. And he's contrasted in 2 Samuel 6 with another guy named David, who is king, who God describes in Acts as a man after his own heart. A man who is completely just in line, on track with God's heart, with God's mind. And when we look at that contrast, what we, what we realize is that God is bringing forth a very crucial lesson for us to get, especially at the start of a new semester, start of a new year. A very crucial lesson about two contrasting concepts. One being our sin and the other being God's grace. But in order to really catch this contrast, in order to really understand this, this uh, illustration, we've got to look at sort of the context Okay, we're going to start off looking at the just broad context of this event. We're then going to look at the actual contrast itself, and then we're going to look at the consequences afterwards. Within the context, we've got to understand what is the Ark of the Covenant. It was in what Sarah just read. Maybe you've heard that term before at church or in Sunday school or something. But the Ark of the Covenant was basically just a big golden box. Uh, if you ever saw Raiders of the Lost Ark with Indiana Jones, uh, he's chasing it. You see it at the end before all the Nazis melt. And it was really awesome, but really creepy if you're five and watching it without your parents knowing. Uh, but you see this Ark of the Covenant. It's basically just this big golden box that Moses was told to create. Moses, who was leading the Israelites uh, throughout the, through the desert, 
let him out of, or out of Egypt. And he's leading him and God tells him, look, you need to make this ark. You need to make this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. Big gold box. You've got two big golden angels on top. And inside of it, you've got, Aaron, you've got a rod. You've got a, uh, a staff. You've got uh, some tablets with the Ten Commandments on it. And then you've got some manna, which is some bread that God used to feed the Israelites for years and years and years in the desert. So you put these kind of historical uh, artifacts inside the box. You close the box up. No one's allowed to open the box. No one's allowed to touch the box. In fact, the box came with this super intense, detailed, long instruction manual of all these ways that you, how to store it, where to store it, uh, who stored it, uh, who could move it, how to move it, uh, where to put, like all these different things, all these different pieces, all these different elements that basically boil down to just no one touch it. Most people don't even look at it. You're going to put it in just the very center of your temple, which is at the very center of your camp. And it's going to be God's throne. Okay, people saw there was another, another term for it was God's throne, God's seat. It was a symbol for how God would come and his presence would descend and be with this ark. That's why you weren't allowed to go in there. In fact, the head priest was allowed to go in and see it once a year. And he would perform a sacrifice, put blood on it to atone for the sins of the nation. Once a year. Because that box represented God's throne. It represented God's presence. And God said, you can't come into my presence. Once a year, I'll let you. If you're performing a sacrifice and if you're clean, that's it. So this ark was very important. The Israelites, eventually, they kind of turned it into a little bit of an idol. And they would take it uh, to their battles. And sometimes God would actually instruct them, hey, take it to the battle. And so people would see it and be like, oh man, here we go. But one time, uh, Saul took the ark to a battle without God's permission. He was like, hey, let's, I really want to win this battle, so let's get the ark. That'll probably do it. And so they get the ark. They bring it out to the battle. Uh, they lose the battle. Uh, and the ark gets captured. In fact, the ark uh, was just like hanging out in the battle. But then the Philistines, these really bad dudes, they like swoop in, beat up the Israelites, kill a bunch of them, and they take the ark, uh, which was a really huge deal. It's the equivalent of like, you know, basically like stealing the opposing school's mascot. Okay, that's what the Philistines wanted to do, right? They were trying to demoralize the Israelites. Like, hey, let's get their ark thing. Like, because they thought that was the Israelites' God. They're like, let's, let's, get that, let's get that box. And so they went and grabbed the box and took it back. Like, I got it. You know, they probably like said like, Israel sucks with like a UX or something. Like on, you know, spray paint. But they have like this. So now they have the ark, right? They have the box. And the Philistines uh, had to figure out what to do with it. Like, well, let's uh, put it in uh, this guy's house. And so they put it in a guy's house. But it was really hilarious in this, this long series of like hijinks where the ark winds up in someone's house and everything just goes really poorly for that person. Uh, a lot of times they put it in like their idol room and like all their other idols will just like fall over or break. Uh, one of them, uh, they, he gets put in the room, the, uh, the other idol's head just like falls off and they're all like, what's going on? So then they like get rid of the ark, they give it to someone else and ship it around. Eventually they just start sending it all around uh, where they live and they were uh, like freaking out. Right? So freaking out about this ark until eventually like their animals are starting to go insane and like tripping out and they're anim- like, doing weird stuff. So they're like, let's just, let's just get rid of it. And so they get the ark, they throw it in the back of this cart. They hitch up like an ox and they're like, wherever the ox takes it, oh, that's okay. That's fine with me, right? They like consult a witch and so it's totally legit. And so they go, they're like, just go, go. And so the ox takes the ark all the way back in Israel, t- literally walks just inside the Israelite border and just stops. And so the Israelites, they realize, oh, hey, it's that ark thing again. And so they go and they put it uh, in just some dude's house, okay, the guy nearby. They're like, hey, let's go put it in his, in his house. That'll work. All right, so the ark, for the past little while, at the start of our story, it's been in just this dude's house, Abinadab. It's been in his house, just kind of chilling. And that's when David decides, hey, wait, 
we should probably do something with that, right? He realizes, wait, 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 no, 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 no. I don't want the ark just like hanging out in some dude's house. I want the ark here. I want to be with me. I want to be in the city of David. I want to be in the capital. Because at this point, David has these grand plans and he's working with architects to design this temple. He wants to build a house for God. And he says, we can't build a house unless we have the ark, unless we have the throne. And so he wants to get the ark, bring it back to the capital so that everyone can see not only that God is king over all of Israel, right? David understood that. David had been running through the desert uh, for years and years and years. And he slowly but surely learned the lesson that God's in control. Okay, that was kind of the spoiler alert. That's kind of the whole reason he goes into the desert, okay? He finds out, okay, God's in control. So he says, well, I want all of Israel to get that. And so I'm going to bring God's throne to the center of the nation where everyone can see that God is in control. Not only that they see his authority, not only do they see that God is this grand authority, but also I want the people to see that they have access to him. I want the people to see that we can go before our God, granted a very limited amount, but we can still go before him. In order to do that, I need the ark. So 2 Samuel 6, verse 1, David gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. Get 30,000 dudes. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Those are those angels. That's right. So God's throne. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. So at this point, David and these guys were like, hey, how are we going to move this ark? Oh, I know. Let's get a brand new cart. Like top of the line, hybrid powered, solar powered cart. Okay, like this is going to be a really nice rear facing backup camera, everything. Okay, we're going to get the top of the line cart, throw the ark on top of it. And they're like, all right, it's a good plan. So throw it on top. On top, and they get the guy whose house has been at. They get his sons to help, right? Uzzah, Ahio. They're sons of Abinadab, the guy whose house it's been at. And they're like, hey, we'll help out. And David's like, cool. Thanks, guys. And so they're loading it up. They got 30,000 people. They got this big old party. And they're like, all right, here we go. And they decide to take it back to the city of David. And with the ark of God and Ahio before the ark, and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Because David decides, you know what? This is a big moment. This is a joyous occasion. We're putting Israel back to where it needs to be. We're putting God back at the center of our nation. So let's have a party. Let's have a festival. So they're singing and they're dancing. They break out the harps and tambourines and castanets. They bust out the castanets. That's when you know you've reached that level of partydom when you get out the castanets, which I found out through Google is actually those little uh, clam clicker things, okay? <laughs> those little, right? And that's what they're doing, man. They're, they're just pumped. They're like, oh, here comes the ark. And everyone's just going nuts, right? Singing and dancing and clicking the array of their fingers. It's a big moment, right? 30,000 people just on the road, like with the dogs, they're all dancing and partying. It's an amazing time. And anyone in that party is going to be looking around and be like, wow, like God is moving. Like this is amazing. We're getting back to where Israel needs to be. We're putting God back where he belongs. We're bringing his throne back to the capital. Man, David's awesome. Israel's awesome. This party's awesome. Castanets are the best. These will never go out of style. Ever. That's what they're all saying. Then verse six rolls around. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. So Uzzah's saying, wow, the ark's about to fall. I'm going to reach out to stop it from falling. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error. 
and he died there beside the ark of God. Middle of the party. Middle of the festival. God decides, you know what? You're not supposed to touch that. Kills him. (laughs) Which is crazy. I remember hearing this story as a kid and just, I didn't know what to do with it. And many of us, man, honestly, when we read this, even now, if we're reading this, we, we should probably stop and kind of struggle for a second and think, wait, what? What did God just do? Why? Uzzah was the son of the guy who had been taking care of the ark. Uzzah had probably been taking care of the ark for a time leading up to this. Uzzah was, had all the right intentions, right? We worship a God who says that he looks at the heart of man, who knows the inside of a man. Couldn't he tell that Uzzah had correct motivations? When we read this story, it looks like Uzzah's heart was in the right place. Sure, maybe he touched the ark and he wasn't supposed to, but he meant well. God kills him? Maybe you're like me. When you heard this story taught when you were a kid, the moral of that story was, you better watch out. That's how it was presented to me in like third grade Sunday school. They said, well, doesn't matter what what you're hoping to do. Doesn't matter what you hope to achieve. God's just. You better look out, third graders. <laughs> That's terrifying. But what do we do with this? What do we do with this idea that, that in the middle of a party, in the middle of a festival, celebrating God, where all these people are literally singing and clapping and castanetting all for God's glory, in the middle of that, God would perform the most extreme of all party fouls by just killing someone in the middle of it. Just boom. In some way that I guarantee you people noticed. That'd be the most awkward moment in a party ever. That trumps every crazy high school story you have, right? This guy just gets struck down by God. Why? Why? Why didn't God just warn him? Why didn't the voice just come from heaven where God goes, don't touch that, right? That would be dramatic. People wouldn't learn their lesson. Why does God kill him? Why does God reach down, take this guy's life? When we look in the book of Leviticus, like I said, there's a super long detailed list of ways to treat the ark. This whole instruction sheet. And what we realize when we look at that instruction manual is that there had been so many instructions not followed up to this point. We see that you were supposed to have Levites transported. They were literally the, the priests, descendants of Levi. They were supposed to be the ones transporting the ark. No one else was supposed to transport the ark. David just grabbed a bunch of random people. He grabbed these guys that were not Levites. We see the rule that you're never supposed to put the ark on a cart, ever. You're never supposed to put the ark anywhere even close to an animal. You're not supposed to put it behind animals. The ark is always supposed to be out front, carried on these rods by Levites alone in the front of everyone. No one's supposed to touch it. God warns repeatedly, if you break these commandments, you will die. So why now? Why did God kill Uzzah at this moment? Why did God do something so dramatic? So dramatic that it shook everybody up. That's why we see verse 8, David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. He's not angry at the Lord. He's not angry at Uzzah. If you read into this, you look at it in the the Hebrew, when you you understand what's going on, you see that actually this is self-directed anger anger. David is angry at himself for allowing this to happen. 
And so he called that place. That place is called Perez Uzzah to this day, literally meaning the outbreak against Uzzah. David says, we're always going to remember what happened here. I'm going to rename this location as the outbreak against Uzzah. So we remember this is where God poured out his wrath, where God broke out against Uzzah. And he was afraid of the Lord. He said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? When confronted with this, when, when David's starting to realize, wow, like I, I'm not ready for this ark, right? He says, I'm not ready for this, this, this thing. I'm not ready for this throne of God. He says, I'm, I'm afraid of this. He's realizing that he's angry on himself because he's realizing I made mistakes. David's seeing his own inadequacies. He's realizing, wow, I do not deserve to have this thing anywhere near me. He says, I can't handle this ark. How could it possibly come to me? David is freaking out because he's beginning to realize that his sin is serious. That's what he's realizing. He's realizing that when he looks at the law, when he looks at Deuteronomy, looks at the book of Leviticus, he sees all these laws, all these really boring laws of like, you can't touch that and you can't eat that and you can't talk to her and don't you, don't go over there, like and all these different things, right? Stay in the pride land, don't go to the elephant graveyard. All these different rules that are laid out for the Israelites. One of which I just inserted myself. But all these different rules. David realizes, wow, it's impossible to follow all of those. He's realizing, wow, these rules are impossible to live up to. I will never follow every commandment. I can't even follow all of the commandments that deal with the ark. And you know what God tells me I deserve if I can't follow these commandments? Death. David's beginning to realize that. He's realizing that God has set up this law not as a petty way to appease him. God says that there are other gods in the surrounding nations around Israel. He, calls, he says that those other nations worship petty gods because he's saying they can do things to appease them. He says, I'm not a petty god. I'm not like those gods. I don't want you to appease me. He says, I have rules that you can't live up to because I don't care about appeasement because I realize that you're sinful. You're broken. And you can never fix that. And David gets it. That's what he gets. That's why he's angry. That's why he's afraid. That's why he leaves the ark behind. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. David literally finds the closest house to where uh, all of it went down. He finds the closest place to where Uzzah gets killed. He says, Lord, let's just stick it there. So they go to Obed-Edom. They say, hey, we're going to put this in your backyard. Obed-Edom says, didn't that just kill a guy? They're like, hey, no, what, what? no, see you later, bye. And they just leave it. Leave it at his house. Like, we don't want to deal with it. David leaves. Leaves the ark. Brings 30,000 plus people back. We're all like, whoa, never mind. Oh, okay. Right, they're done. <laughs> they walk back with no ark. Because David is realizing, wow, there's this huge problem with us. There's a huge issue. Our sin is so serious. Our sin is so serious that we can never hope to approach God. We can't even carry his ark. We can't even touch his throne or else we die. Our sin is so serious. It will separate us from the Lord forever and ever and ever. David's starting to realize that and it's freaking him out. So why did God kill Uzzah in that way? I would tell you he's making a point. He is purposefully being the most dramatic, most just biggest, boldest illustration point ever. 
God is using contrast between this big festival, this big party, and he's contrasting it with just killing a guy just straight up in the middle of it for touching his ark. Because God is telling them, your sin is serious. This old phrase the pastors love to throw around says no one ever learned they were a sinner by being told. You've got to experience it. You've got to see brokenness. You've got to see sin. You've got to experience. You've got to commit sin to realize how real it is. God knew that. And honestly, we see that. We experience this in our own lives. I've been an uncle for a few years now. I now have three nieces. Uh, two of them are at the point where they can like do things. The other one's like really little, so she doesn't count. But the other two, one of them's three and a half, the other one's two and a half. And they're at the point now where they can like talk and like run around and play games. And it's awesome. You get to interact with them, have conversations with them, ask them about their day. And you get to have these really cool uh, interactions with them. And I love being an uncle because there's, honestly, they brought so much joy and just wonderful laughter and life to me. It's been great. Uh, but I've also learned so much just about human nature and just the depravity of man through these little girls. Uh, because there's no one more just uninhibited, just, just more, I don't even, just fully embracing of their humanity than like three-year-olds. Okay, that's, that's like it. That is the pinnacle of embracing your humanity right there. You've all lost it. I'm sad for you. Maybe you'll get it back when you're like 80. I don't know, because they're crazy too. But three-year-olds, three-year-olds just don't care. Uninhibited. Any emotion that they experience, you'll just watch it wash over them. And they're dealing with it, and they're just kind of talking through it. And I've seen my little nieces when we were over the break. We were hanging out. We were having some princess parties uh, in one of the rooms. And as we were in there, we are kind of hanging out and listening to music. We were eating too many muffins, so our stomachs would explode, and it was hilarious. And so as we were doing that... We're eating all the muffins. Uh, at one point, Catherine, one of my nieces, she would take the other nieces, like doll, uh, Elsa doll from Frozen. She would take her to Barbie doll. And then Penelope, my other niece, she would just kind of get, she didn't know what to do. She was just kind of upset and knew that she wanted her doll back, but Catherine's bigger than her, so she can't really do anything about it. And so in that moment, she just kind of get upset and she would stick her tongue out. Just every time. Which, you know, as an uncle, I'm just like, I'm like, oh, you crazy little kids, like sticking your tongue out. And Catherine would do the same thing. Anytime Penelope would do something to upset her or take her toy or like mess up, Catherine's a little uh, OCD about things. She like arranges her cups and like toys and everything in very particular order. She could just sit and like stack a deck of cards for hours. It's amazing. She just loves things being neat. And so Penelope would come in just like be a two and a half year old and just just knock everything down. And Catherine would be so upset that she would just kind of, oh, she just had this rage kind of build up and she would just, ugh, she would stick her tongue out every single time, which I thought was really precious. I was like, oh, I'm just going to boop your tongue. You know, like that's, that's fun. Like who cares? But her parents would get really upset. And I asked them, I was like, why, you know, why you discipline them every time they stick their tongues out? And my sisters had to explain to me, well, that's the most vicious thing that they can think of. Like that is the maximum like retribution that they're capable of, right? They don't have these like long vocabularies of four-letter words. Like they don't, they don't get on Urban Dictionary a lot. And so they don't know other things to say or things to do. They don't know hand gestures or any of that stuff. They know though that there's something wrong about sticking your tongue out. Somehow they learned that. No one knows how, but somehow they learn that there's something ugly and just mean about sticking your tongue out. So they do it. They immediately go to just the most extreme act, like, act of attrition that they can think of. Anytime something goes wrong, 
And when they told me that, when I realized that that's what they're doing, that, that they're getting a little upset and they immediately dial it up to like 11 on the scale. And they're like, ooh, and they're sticking their tongues out in just pure rage. When I realized that, I got so sad. I was so sad because I realized, oh my goodness, like you do not know how to handle your emotions. Like you don't want to handle just outside world stimulus. You immediately jump to this level where you're, you're expressing hate. You're doing the most vicious thing you can think of when she like moved your Barbie? Because there's nothing like a three-year-old, there's nothing like a little kid to show you just how incredibly broken people are. We are so messed up that these little girls have never been affirmed. No one's ever told them, ooh, good job. Like, yeah, you stick it out. Stick it out further. That'll get it. You know, no one's ever affirmed that action. All they've ever heard is don't do that. And yet they do it. Because we're sinners. We've experienced that. We've committed sins. We've been the recipients of someone else's sin. And we realize, wow, this world is broken. David saw Uzzah die in the middle of the party. And he realized, my sin is serious. It's so serious. And when we grasp that idea, we would probably be like David. We'd say, wow, I don't want that ark. But then, in the midst of that, we see God do something amazing. We see God build up another contrast, another bold illustration. We saw Uzzah, sorry, I forgot to mention this quote. We saw Uzzah, put it very well by his pastor, uh, by the name of Tim Keller. He says, when Uzzah saw the ark was falling, he thought that the dirt on the ground would defile the ark, but that touching him would not. See, David understood that our sin is so serious. And Uzzah's problem is that he didn't. Uzzah's heart was not in the right place. Uzzah did not come into that situation with good, wholesome motivations. Uzzah rejected the idea that our sin is serious. Uzzah rejected the idea that he was dirty because he saw the ark falling and he said, you know what, the ground's dirty, but I'm not. I'm okay. So I'll just pick it up. And God says, no, no. Your sin is serious. I'm gonna kill you. But in the midst of that, we see verse 11, where the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his household. We don't know how he blessed him, but we know that it was some big grand way that people noticed to the point where in verse 12, it was told to King David that the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Suddenly we see that in the midst of that sin, in the midst of that depravity, in the midst of that seriousness, God still blesses. David found out he's still blessing Obed-Edom's house. David suddenly realizes, yeah, my sin's serious, but, but God is gracious. He realizes that I am so broken, there's nothing I can do, but God is blessing in the midst of that. God's providing blessing. God is being gracious and pouring out his blessing upon us. Even though we're so broken, God is still loving us, still blessing us. David realizes that though my sin is serious, my God is so gracious. So David says, I got to get that ark. So he gets some people. He says, let's go get it. 
And this time he reads the instruction manual. That's why we see that those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps. He sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. David danced before the Lord with all his might. He's wearing a linen ephod. We see that David goes and he brings Levites. They're actually carrying the ark this time. They don't put it on a cart. They get it out. They pull it out. And David does the sacrifice, right? Back in those times, whenever you went to a holy place, you performed a sacrifice. You, you took an animal, put it on an altar, and you laid your hands on it. And you said, uh, all, you know, I'm going to give all my sin, all like my iniquities to this animal. Because I don't deserve to be in this holy place. I don't, res- I don't deserve the Lord's blessing. So I'm going to give all this like nasty dirtiness, all that uh, tongue sticking out that I did yesterday. I'm just going to put it on this lamb. Okay, I'm going to put it all on this animal. Then you kill the animal, burn the animal up, do all these different stuff. Then that animal d- receives the punishment you deserve. And then you're cool. You're totally cool. All right, so this was very normal. But David does something very different. David purposefully leaves out the whole hand thing, right? When we see he just, he sacrifices his ox, his fattened animal, he doesn't lay hands on them because David is starting to catch just the briefest glimpse of God's future plan of redemption. David doesn't know that Jesus Christ is going to be born, that he's going to come and live a perfect life, die the death we deserve, rise again proving power of sin and death so that we can put our faith in him for the forgiveness of our sins. David didn't quite get that, but he caught just the briefest cloudy little glimpse of it. In fact, this is right around the same time that David uh, is told by God, he's given a new covenant, the Davidic covenant is what we call it, where God tells him, look, the Mosaic covenant, that's kind of, yeah. instead we're going to go with the Davidic covenant where there's all these different pieces and we're going to unpack it later this semester. But he says, look, we need to have these different things, these elements, and God's kind of giving them just a little bit more of a more comprehensive view of how redemption is going to work. But David's getting just a little, little piece of it. He says, I don't need to put my sins on these animals. He's starting to realize, wow, that, that sacrifice, it's not what saves me. In fact, we know now when we read the book of Hebrews that oxen, cattle, sheep. They never took away our sin, ever. It was always faith. It was always our faith that we put in God. So it's all of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rahab, all these people back then. They were never saved by oxen, by goats, by sheep. It says, no, that was never it. The Hebrews tells us, no, it's, it was always faith. And David is just barely kind of getting that. So suddenly he has this big procession. Suddenly he's dancing and partying. Suddenly he's going with all the house of Israel brought up to the ark with, with shouting, with the sound of the horn. They're doing this big celebration, this big uh, parade all over again, not so that they would be able to know God. David's saying, no, I'm, I'm not doing this in order to know God. I'm doing these things because I already know him. I'm not concerned about laying my hands on these animals because I realize that my God already knows me, that I've, I do trust him. I've learned that lesson. I have a relationship with him. Therefore, I'm, I'm cool. David's realizing that in the midst of that sin, in light of his sin, man, he loved grace. In light of his sin, he loved grace. Realized that God had chosen him. was pouring out blessing upon him for no other reason other than the fact that God chose him. David got it. Uzzah didn't. And we see the difference. We see how that plays out. We see it in the rest of Scripture. We see repeatedly throughout Scripture this idea that we are saved by grace, by grace, through faith, 
and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. That's why we see in Hebrews chapter 10, by this we will know we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews says, look, there was one offering that needed to happen, one sacrifice. You know what it was? Jesus Christ. It wasn't that lamb, it wasn't that goat, it wasn't that sheep. Those were all good, those were illustrations. Those were good things that people did, kind of signify the faith they put in Christ. It's good that you come to church. It's good that you join Bible studies. It's good that you wear that cross around your neck. But those things don't save you. Those are illustrations of the faith you've already put in Christ. It's good to get baptized. Doesn't get you to heaven. It's your faith. Those other things are outward indications of an inward decision, an inward reality. Hebrews says, Jesus Christ was the only sacrifice we needed. 1 Peter 3 tells us, for Christ also died for the sins once for all the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. He's telling us, look, we're, we're cool now because of what Christ did. He died so that we don't have to die. He was sacrificed so that we don't have to perform sacrifices. That's why I'm not about to kill a goat tonight. Maybe next week for fun, but not this night, right? We don't need it. We don't have to perform these sacrifices because Christ already was sacrificed. This whole semester, what we're doing is we're going to be looking through just sort of the life of David. We're going to be looking at different snapshots. And as we look uh, to understand his heart, as we try to seek to understand this dude and just kind of what he did, uh, because honestly, there's no one else that the Bible loves more. Honestly, you look at the language in the Bible, and I mean, David does a bunch of really terrible things. But even in the midst of all that, you just see this, this love for David. And I think it's because God loved him. He loves all of us, but he loved David in a way that, I don't know, I, don't, I think we miss sometimes. That's why God says that David was a man after his own heart. And honestly, I, I want us to look at the life of David so that we can understand that heart, so we can pull it apart and study and see what pieces kind of brought together. What were the characteristics that made his heart one that was just like God's? Because I want that. When I hear terminology like that, I want that heart. I hope you do. I want it for you. I want you to have that heart after God's heart. So to get there, we're going to look at these stories. We're going to look at Psalms. We're going to look at not only the events that happened in David's life, but we're going to basically read his journal. Every week, we're going to look at some Psalms and look at some things that he wrote, the emotions he was feeling, the way he poured out to the Lord. To try to understand this heart of this, this man who was walking after the Lord. Did a bunch of terrible stuff, but yet somehow was still following the Lord. And I'll tell you, the reason that he was, I think, honestly, the main thing, the thing I want us to really keep in mind, the reason that we did this the very first week, this story, this really weird story, this first week, is because I want us to realize that the number one, just in my opinion, number one piece, number one characteristic that really puts David in line with the Lord is the fact that he loved grace. The fact that he understood this sin was serious, but that he understood that our God is gracious. And that in light of his sin, he loved grace. And he repented. Because you look through church history, you realize that God is so gracious. And he always works through people who understand grace. When you look at our church history, it's really insane. I don't know if you've ever studied church history. You probably shouldn't. It'll really shake your faith tree. But you look at the church history, and you see just all these men, all these women, all these grand figures that do all this stuff. They kind of set up the church, and they write these awesome things. They have really weird names, like Augustine and other weird ones. And so you see these weird names, these people out there. And you, on, you often think, I've talked to students this past semester who think, oh, well, those guys got all together. They're like, oh yeah, well, I mean, the Bible's cool and I'm gonna believe the Bible, of course. But have you read 
This guy, he, was, he studied right under John the Apostle. This guy wrote this. This guy wrote that. He studied with this apostle. He, he knew this apostle. How amazing. I should study his words. And it's true, there's a lot of wisdom to be found in church history, but the reality is that, man, you look at our founding fathers of the faith. You look at, for example, one of the top dogs, a guy named Martin Luther, you probably heard about, lived in Germany, nailed a thing to a church. Everyone was like, oh, snap, and everything changed, right? And that's what started the Protestant Reformation. Catholicism was already kind of crumbling, and then they were like, oh, okay, that's it, we give up, right? So Martin Luther just sort of starts off this huge revolution. People try to kill him, the Pope hated him. But he's like, ah, whatever. And he went and grabbed all these other like, priests, and he was like, you guys can do whatever you want. Right? He starts this big re- reformation within the church, loved by priests and nuns because he allowed them to intermarry. He was like, hey, it's totally cool if priests get married. And the priests were all like, yeah, it is. Woo! And they all just go nuts, and they all get married like immediately. It's hilarious. And he performs like hundreds of weddings like at a time. He would have all the people like just line up in front of him and be like, you're all married. They're all like, whoa! And they just like run off, right? Because they're like, so excited. He starts this whole big movement. And Martin Luther was amazing. He wrote amazing things. People study him. You should. He's an amazing figure that God used. But Martin Luther had incredibly wrong views of the world and of God and of theology. He was so off on some stuff. He, for example, did not like the Bible that we have. Despite the fact that it was pretty much nailed down early, very early in church. The fact that you know, they are all books that are written by apostles, men that God spoke to. He said, well, I don't like these ones that are more geared towards the Israelites. He says, I don't like books that sounds like their audience were Hebrews. So he hated, like, for example, the book of Hebrews. He says, I don't like that book. And so he would put it at the end of his Bible. I don't know how that worked. If his Bible was just like modular or he had them all like stacked, like, I don't know, Legos. I don't know. He did somehow would move these books and put them in the back. He's like, I, mm, I'm just going to pretend that's those maps in the back. I'm not going to read that. Right? Like, he didn't care. He probably put it behind the maps. He's like, I don't care about you. And so he wouldn't read those books. That's really insane. Martin Luther, in fact, he hated those books so much because Martin Luther had this really weird, like, anti-Semitic attitude. Martin Luther hated Jewish people in general because he blamed them for the death of Christ. He's like, well, they killed Jesus. Therefore, humbug. Like, I hate them. And so he hated all the Jews. It's insane. And you look at his life and you're like, what in the world? Why did, what? But you look and you see how God used him. You see the people whose lives were changed. You look at us today. We're here right now because of Martin Luther. Because of men who came before him, men who came after him. Because of that train of thought that God used. God worked through Martin Luther. We're going to see him in heaven. Because God works through broken people. And he always works through the ones who love grace. You look at biblical figures like David who murdered, had affairs, murdered people he had affairs. It's crazy. God used them. You look at which of David's wives, like that was wrong as well. He married a bunch of women. Bad call. He marries all these people, totally against God's rule. God says, well, you know what? I'm not even going to bring Jesus from your lineage through your first wife, right? He says, instead, I'm going to pick kind of this lady, like, way down here, Bathsheba, the one who he had the affair with. He says, that's what I'm going to work through. Because when we look in 2 Samuel, as we'll look this semester, David and Bathsheba, man, they understood grace. They loved grace because they saw their sin and they repented. You look at our church fathers, I, I tell you, there's really bad things in their theology all the way to today. It, didn't just, it wasn't just like back then, right? You look at more current, John Wesley, John Calvin. You look at these different guys. 
There, everyone's got like one thing. It's super weird. Everyone's got one thing. I don't know what mine is. Probably that goat I'm going to kill next week, but I don't know. But everyone's got one thing. But God uses them. I think because in the midst of that brokenness, people still understand grace. So my challenge to you is that as we start this new semester, man, maybe you kind of thought of like some bad sin. Maybe you've got kind of some stuff going on in your life right now. You're like, oh man, I don't know. Like, you don't know what I did last week. You don't know what I did over the break. You don't know that relationship that I started. You don't know that person that I wrecked. God's gracious. Your sin is serious, but God's gracious. Maybe you're thinking, well, I mean, I got this one area and I guess it's technically wrong to, you know, whatever, murder hobos, but I don't think it's that big of a deal, right? You're not taking them seriously. But you need to. You need to take your sin seriously. You need to realize that these things are, are wrong, that God takes your sin so seriously. So as we sing a few more songs, we enter into a little bit more worship. My challenge is that you just need to stop. Take a moment. Think about this semester. Think about your break. Think about this new year that we were coming up on. And ask yourself some tough questions. Ask yourself, man, is there sin in my life that I'm not taking seriously? Is there something I'm just kind of letting slide? Or maybe is there a sin I'm taking too seriously? Is there a sin that I have in my life, this guilt that I have that, man, I don't think God's grace can cover it? Do you need to learn to just embrace God's grace? Do you need to learn to love grace in light of your sin, either in your life or in someone else's? Is there someone who wronged you that you just, you just don't think God can forgive them? Bless their heart. You just don't think God can forgive them. Is there a family member, friend, someone who you just, just can't get over it? We need to understand the severity of our sin, but we need to realize the depth of our God's grace. So ask yourself those questions. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that despite our sin being so serious, that God, you are so gracious. God, we thank you that you always are moving through our world, through people who love grace. Lord, we know that many of us have a long, long way to go. God, we realize that we are broken in ways that we can hardly understand ourselves, but God, we, we also know that you are bigger than all those faults, than all those mistakes, than all those words that we said, than all those terrible things that we did. If you would take a moment right now, just ask the Lord to show you maybe some sin that you're not taking seriously. Ask the Lord to convict you right now. Ask him to reveal to you where are you stepping outside his lines. Now take a moment and thank the Lord that there is grace in the midst of your brokenness. That there is forgiveness found in the death of Jesus Christ that there is a righteousness that will be given to you if you simply trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Thank the Lord for that and ask him, where should you be loving grace more in your life? Ask the Lord to show you where do you need to learn to just hand over a mistake to the Lord, to run towards his grace, either in your life or in someone else's. Ask the Lord to show you where do you need to love grace more right now.